This is the Swingin' A's of a Spoochy Story, written by me, Jason Turbo, and narrated by Judd Myers. The Oakland A's of the early 1970s were the most iconoclastic team in baseball history. Never before had a club so collectively traumatized baseball's establishment with its eccentric behavior and business decisions, not to mention its outlandish facial hair, while simultaneously setting records. Five consecutive division titles and three straight championships. Yet, despite all the winning, the drama that played out on the field was somehow exceeded by the drama in the clubhouse. Would you object to Mr. Trio being in our bullpen? I don't care. As long as the fight starts, he stays there. <laughs> there were fist fights between players on the regular. The one thing that kept the team from splintering was the fact that, as much as they might have loathed each other, they loathed the team's owner, Charlie Finley, even more. At least they had that much in common. Welcome to Game 2 of the 1973 World Series. The National League champions, the New York Mets, versus the American League champions, the Oakland A's. It was Game 2 of the World Series championship, top of the 12th inning, the Mets leading 7-6 when the ball rolled straight between the legs of the Oakland A's second baseman, Mike Andrews. The Mets should not have been winning. Oakland boasted more power and way more speed. As A's charismatic outfielder Reggie Jackson put it, the Mets got no business being in this thing. But now they were losing, and a ball had scooted between Mike Andrews' legs, a little league error. The Mets seized the moment, tacking on two more runs and expanding their lead to 9-6. The next hitter topped another ball towards second. Andrews, charging hard, ready to redeem himself, fielded this one cleanly. The strange saga of Mike Andrews is just beginning. Jerry Grody is ruled safe on this play with another error charged to Andrews for a wide throw pulling tennis off first. But his throw sailed wide of its target drawing first baseman Gene Tennis off the bag and adding another error to Andrew's ledger. What would have been a three-run deficit was now four, and Andrews found himself under an unpleasant spotlight. He'd entered the game in the eighth inning, cold and almost completely unpracticed as Oakland's third second baseman of the game. And now all eyes were on him in the worst way. The game ended in a disappointing 10-7 victory for the Mets. Andrews slumped at his locker, head down, mumbling, my fault, my fault, again and again. Team manager Dick Williams wouldn't hear it. Williams was one tough son of a bitch. On that, everybody agreed, but he was fair. He wasn't about to pin any loss, let alone this one, on a single player. Passing by Andrew's locker, he gave the morose player a reassuring pat on the back. Remember what I've said about physical mistakes, he said, trying to console the inconsolable. They happen to everybody. You're human. But a different kind of story was being told up in the executive suite, the lair of club owner Charlie Finley. Finley didn't care about fair. He was well-known as a cruel, controlling megalomaniac who was as successful as he was despised. Unable to yield control even to the experts, his insatiable need for the final say in all matters dictated everything from 
player transactions to the playlist of the ballpark organist to the menu for the media lounge. And today, Finley was ready for a head to roll, just the way the ball had rolled through Andrew's legs. When the press approached Andrews after the game, he was straightforward. Reporters asked if his old shoulder injury had affected his play, and he firmly said no. His shoulder was fine. I have no excuse for what happened, he said. I should be able to catch the ball and throw it. But I'm not going to die tomorrow just because I made two errors today. The press conference finished, and Andrews started packing up. The A's were due at the airport but he was interrupted by an odd message requesting him in the trainer's room, Finley's orders. Waiting for him there was the team orthopedist who proceeded to lay hands upon Andrew's right arm, poking and prodding the shoulder and bicep. Do you feel any pain? he asked. No, said Andrews each time. No. Meanwhile, team manager Dick Williams was sitting in his tiny clubhouse office pondering how the game's exhausting outcome would affect his team. Williams was startled when Finley stormed into the room and slammed the door. Dick, Finley said, his voice crackling with anticipatory energy. We're putting Andrews on the disabled list and activating Manny Trio. This made no sense to the manager. What happened? he asked. I didn't see Andrews get hurt. Oh, yes, he did, that son of a bitch replied Finley. He got hurt real bad. Williams stared at Finley. In that moment, Williams realized what Finley was plotting and how far he would sink in order to get his way. He was planning on disabling Andrew so that he could activate another player to take his place. Charlie, you can't do this, Williams shouted. You're getting rid of a man because of physical errors, which means you're getting rid of him because he's a human being. Finley was waving away his concerns when Andrews walked in the door. Mike, said Williams quickly, I I've got nothing to do with this. Mike Andrews had heard the stories about Finley. Finley had fired a parade of managers before Dick Williams came along. He'd heaped suffering upon Reggie Jackson after the young star argued for fair market value pay. He'd bullied Vita Blue into mental ruination for similar reasons in 72. He banished Dave Duncan and Mike Epstein and perpetrated a one-man crusade against Tommy Davis. But this was the first time that Andrews found himself the target. As soon as Andrews walked into the office, Finley transformed into a sweet-talking salesman. He expressed sympathy for Andrews' shoulder issues, saying he understood how hard it must be for an athlete to perform at diminished capacity. You had to be hurt to make those plays. He cooed. He told Andrews that his secretary was right this moment typing up a letter for him to sign, a letter stating that his shoulder was injured and affected his play. It would be the right thing to do, Finley insisted, to allow a younger, more capable player to take Andrews' spot on the roster. Andrews was a team player, wasn't he? Did he not want to help the ball club? Andrews was shocked. It wasn't right. He wasn't hurt. He had suffered an injury years earlier, but that was well documented when he signed with Oakland and had grown no worse in the interim. He had simply screwed up. He was in no pain and sought no excuses. He refused to sign. By this time, the clubhouse was empty. 
The rest of the team had showered, changed, and packed, and were sitting in a bus that, for reasons nobody could fathom, was not moving. Slowly, rumors began to build that Finley was trying to take Andrews off the roster. The players grew agitated, and gradually a chant started to swell. We want Mike! We want Mike! Back in Williams' office, Finley was irate. But he was also canny and quickly composed himself. He hadn't reached the height of the insurance game where he'd made his millions by giving up at the first rejection. He asked whether Andrews would at least come to his office to review the freshly drafted memo in person. Grudgingly, the player agreed. There, Finley produced the letter. Firm, paternal, Finley told Andrews that signing would be the selfless thing to do, the ultimate act of sacrifice. Andrews was flummoxed. He didn't know what to do. He knew the truth, that he was probably finished with the A's no matter what happened. And so he cracked. He took the paper and he signed it. Then he told the owner that he'd rather go home than accompany the team to New York. That's a great idea, enthused Finley. Andrews walked away, torn from the inside out. The team finally departed for the airport, but players were peppering Williams with non-stop questions. Where was Andrews? What had happened? When they learned about the statement Finley had made Andrews sign, the temperature began to boil. Firing a player? Turning a team doctor against somebody he was ostensibly hired to serve? They all knew Finley was a monster, but this time it had gone too far. If Finley could do that kind of thing to Andrews, they realized, he could do it to any of them. The mood quickly spun toward rage. The players grew even more irate the next morning in New York. One after another, they went downstairs to the lobby of the Americana Hotel and saw the lone set of unclaimed luggage with Andrews' name tags. It wasn't until the media caught wind of it and began to treat the bags like roadside memorial markers that the hotel moved them to a storage room. By the time the players reached the ballpark for Monday's workout, their anger had settled into a mutinous fury. Inside the clubhouse, they openly discussed revolt, even entertaining the notion of boycotting the World Series until justice was served. This was chicken shit. Joe Reichler, MLB's media liaison, raced around the clubhouse yelling at the players. Are you nuts? You can't boycott the World Series? You can't just say, I'm not going to play? He was right, and the players knew it. But they sure as hell weren't going to hear it from a member of baseball's establishment. They ran Reichler straight from the room. When the clubhouse doors were unlocked, the national media tumbled in. Outfielder Reggie Jackson spoke of embarrassment and disappointment. A team is a team, he said. Finley doesn't seem to understand that. He spent yesterday getting his friends and freeloaders on the plane and a player off of it. Well, the players won't stand for it. We won't just take it and shut up. This team has endured a lot of incidents from Finley, but this may be the last straw. I, I've never seen the mood of the team so mean. The typically fractious A's were united in their uproar. Second baseman Dick Green began using athletic tape to paste Andrew's uniform number, 17, onto their sleeves, stopping only when he ran out of tape. Remember, 
Crean told a line of players awaiting his services. If you make an error, you can't go back to Oakland. There was talk of fabricating black armbands to wear during Game 3 the following night. The press ate it up. Reporters staked out the team's hotel lobby and took to knocking on doors in a frantic quest for comment. The situation was sliding out of Finley's control. He called a midnight press conference in the media room at the Americana where he laid out his version of events in a long-winded oratory. He said the player's decision to wear Andrew's number 17 on their sleeves was horseshit and informed the press that the only reason anybody was upset was because they lacked vital information. When a reporter asked whether Andrew's shoulder was already injured when he signed with the team, Finley didn't answer. When the question was repeated, he abruptly stood up. Gentlemen, he said curtly, this press conference has ended. But the -the off-the-diamond drama had only just begun. The next day, baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn sided unequivocally with the players. His first step was to deny Finley's request to add a new player to the roster. His second was to order Andrew's immediate reinstatement. Andrews, however, was reluctant to return. His name had been in the headlines for reasons he was ashamed of. The last place he wanted to be was back in the spotlight. However, there were people whose opinions mattered more to him than the press. Before he decided anything, Andrews knew he had to face his teammates. First, he called Reggie Jackson, telling him that he had signed Finley's statement under duress and that Finley had threatened to destroy him. He called Dick Williams to find out how the players felt about both him and the situation at large. He called starting pitcher Catfish Hunter to pass along his thanks to the club for backing him through it all. By the time the calls ended, two things had happened. The players, particularly Reggie Jackson, were angrier than ever. And Andrews agreed to return. But on one condition. He wanted a platform from which to tell his side of the story. Finley, back pressed firmly against the wall, assented. Finley knew this had the makings of trouble. He insisted that Williams call a clubhouse meeting before Andrews returned. He wanted Williams to tell the team the official version of the story. Players sat on stools as Williams recited Finley's flimsy reasoning. His action was not personal against Andrews. He only wanted to stack the roster with the best talent available. Blah, blah, blah. The speech was brief and passionless. Williams later called it the hardest thing he had ever been forced to say, and that it made him feel cheap and dirty. Then, Williams went off script. I get a lot of satisfaction out of this game, because as far as I'm concerned, you guys are one of the greatest teams that ever played, he told them. And I get a lot of satisfaction about being your manager. But I'm not taking this shit anymore. Williams began to get emotional. This is the hardest thing I've ever done, he said. But somebody has to stand up to this man, and it's going to be me. With that, he dropped the bombshell. I'm going to deny this if it leaks out from this room. But I'm resigning at the end of this World Series. Win, lose, or draw. Then he turned retreated to his office and closed the door. His players were staggered. The room was silent. Williams would be giving up two years at $70,000 per year, more money than he had ever made. 
He was walking away from what stood to be a two-time championship team because he couldn't stand Finley. And within the hour, the players made sure everybody knew it. In the clubhouse and on the field, the players peppered the media with quote after quote, explaining in every way possible not just how wrong the owner was, but how rotten, how down to the core ruined. Less than an hour after Williams dropped his bombshell, it was time to take the field to play game three. The weather at Shea Stadium was freezing. It was the first nighttime World Series game ever played in New York, and the air was biting. 48 degrees with a 20 mile per hour wind howling off of Flushing Bay. If it gets this cold in Puerto Rico, said Met second baseman Felix Mian, everybody dies. Catfish Hunter was the starting pitcher, and he was struggling to focus. Oakland's right handed ace, Catfish Hunter, is off to a shaky start. He was getting shelled, his head full of thoughts about Finley, Williams, and Andrews. Wayne Garrett leads off with a home run, and the Mets are flying early. Ten pitches in, and Hunter was on the precipice of disaster. Williams visited the mound and tried desperately to calm his pitcher, even as emergency relievers began warming up in the bullpen. Hunter's second pitch to the next hitter bounced into the dirt, off the shin guard of catcher Ray Fossey, and into Oakland's dugout allowing Felix Mian to skip home with the Mets' second run. The game was quickly becoming a full-fledged catastrophe. The crowd was in a frenzy. The A's were a mess. Nobody could figure out how it happened, but Hunter held New York from there. Oakland scratched out a run in the eighth to tie it 2-2 and eventually eked out an improbable 3-2 victory and a two-games-to-one series lead. But still, as the players walked off the field... They felt far from victorious. A cloud hung over them. The next day, Andrew's condition for returning to the team was met. In a ballroom at the Americana, wearing the same suit in which he'd sloped away from the club on Sunday, his attorney at his side, he told a packed press corps his version of what went down. Andrews did not come off like a man with a vendetta. Refusing to paint Finley in a harsh light, he went out of his way to soften the blows. No matter how he phrased it, of course, Andrew's testimony was damning. Mr. Finley never threatened me, he said. I never demanded a contract for next year. I figured I'd be finished in baseball if I didn't sign. I figured we didn't need another ball player, and the least I could do was sign. His eyes welling with tears, he said, I'm sorry I signed it, and he could talk no more. Game four signals the return of the champion of underdog causes. Deactivated after his successive errors in game two, Mike Andrews is now reinstated. Officially, Andrews was back on the team for game four. However, Williams was under direct orders from Finley to keep the controversial player as far from the field as possible. Andrews was not under any circumstances to play. The game was once again a distraction-filled mess for the A's. The Mets jumped out early against the A's, and by the eighth inning, they had stretched their lead to 6-1. to one. Defeat looming, Williams told Andrews to get ready to pinch hit. He was sending him in. There was zero game strategy behind the decision. Williams just wanted to stick it to Finley in front of an audience. His appearance in a pitch-hitting role gives the Shea Stadium crowd an opportunity to voice its opinion. As Andrews emerged from the dugout, 
the real number 17 back on the field at last. His teammates stood and applauded. Charlie and Mrs. Finley take it all in with a smile. As he made a slow walk to the plate, the crowd at Shea began to roar. Mets fans held no particular love for Mike Andrews, but they sure as hell hated Charlie Finley by now and knew exactly what to do when presented with an opportunity to express it. The applause started with the fans nearest the dugout and quickly spread like wildfire as nearly 55,000 people in the stadium leapt to their feet in a standing ovation. Only Charlie Finley and his traveling party remained seated and stone-faced. Some of the players heard Williams mutter, Take that, you son of a bitch. Andrews connected, but grounded out, and received a second ovation as he walked back to the dugout. No one had ever seen anything like it. A standing ovation from a hostile crowd for grounding out. A's players were awestruck, goosebumps on every arm. At that moment, said A's reliever Daryl Knowles, I found myself falling in love with Mets fans. The game ended in a Mets win, tying the series 2-2. Two to two. And the next game, Game 5, was another easy win for the Mets. It was bad news for the A's. They'd have to win the next two games to avoid elimination. The day of Game 6 arrived, and the A's were greeted with some unexpected news. The Mets were starting their ace, Tom Seaver, on short rest. Statistically, Seaver's performance wavered when he wasn't given adequate rest days but it looked like the Mets were willing to take that risk. It was a glimmer of hope, and the A's seized it. Oakland's second batter of the game, Joe Rudy, slapped an opposite field single, and one out later raced home on a double by Reggie Jackson for the A's first lead since Game 3. United against their true enemy, Finley, the A's played with everything they had. Jackson double scores Sal Bando to make it two to nothing. And it was enough. Game six was theirs. Now everything rested on game seven. Raleigh Fingers nails the Mets one, two, three. And for the third straight year, the World Series will conclude with a seventh game showdown. The pinnacle of sports, the ultimate in pressure. After 173 regular season, playoff, and World Series games, it all comes down to one final contest. As Game 7 loomed, a letter was sent to broadcaster Monty Moore, warning that if Reggie played that day, it would be the last thing he ever did. The writer claimed he had a high-powered rifle with long-range sights and would pop Reggie from the stands. Reggie enlisted his 290-pound mechanic buddy to be his bodyguard and was assigned FBI agents for Game 7. The A's were no strangers to drama, and they had a World Series to play. The Coliseum was tense for the final game. The fans didn't know about the death threat, but there was already enough to put them on edge. But death threat or no, Reggie was feeling it. First contact with the ball... He hit it 400 feet over the right center field wall and skipped with joy as he rounded the bases. There's a long When he reached the plate, he drew his knees to his chest and landed with a two-footed stomp. You could feel it in the air. Oakland was going to win. Together, the unruly A's dominated the game 
and pushed through to a spectacular World Series victory. At Pilot's night, Reggie Jackson hugging Dick Williams early in the year. They had words. Jackson blasted his own manager. But as Reggie said, I get impulsive at times. Thousands of fans descended upon the diamond, demolishing the turf, stealing bases, snatching hats from players' heads, flattening the mound, and ransacking the dugouts. The A's are much more than amazing. The final out of the 1973 World Series seals a 5-2 win, and the Oakland A's have passed the test of champions with another seven-game triumph and their second consecutive championship. Once players had fled, literally fled, to the safety of the clubhouse, they quickly found themselves pushed against walls and into lockers by the mass of media members, hangers-on, and party crashers that poured into the room. Every reporter wanted to know the same things. The Andrews situation and Williams' resignation had to be the greatest distractions in World Series history. And yet the A's managed to overcome them both and play ball. How did it happen? How did they feel? What did it mean for the Oakland A's? True to his reputation, Reggie Jackson entertained the largest scrum of reporters. He was one big smile until Finley, having bullied his way into the room, sidled up. Thanks for all you did for the club, the owner said, partly to Reggie and partly to the rolling cameras. Jackson looked at him blankly and offered no response. After a moment, the player turned back to the press and asked, Now where were we? On the far side of the room, Andrews was basking in the victory, but made a concerted effort to keep a low profile. Too much of the storyline had already been about him, he thought, and he didn't want to dominate any more headlines. Finley moved around the room, wedging his way through the mass of humanity to address players as he passed them, always focused on a nearby TV crew when he did taking credit for signing the players who had led the club to victory. When a reporter asked Reggie Jackson how much recognition should go to Finley, he snapped, Please don't give that man the credit. He spoiled what should have been a beautiful thing. Reggie took a swig of champagne and spat it out, calling it lousy, cheap, and typical of the owner. Dick Williams followed through with his promise announcing to the press that he was resigning his position as manager of the ball club. That night, the A's held a victory celebration in an upper room at Vince's restaurant just down the road from the Coliseum. With no media to keep them on their toes and no drama from the executive suite, this was the A's at their most casual, goals fulfilled and with no expectations other than to have a good time, which they did. Right up until inebriated shortstop Bert Campanaris went after Reggie with a steak knife. Luckily, third baseman Sal Bando grabbed Campanaris and Jackson remained unstabbed. This, apparently, was how the A's relaxed. And they wouldn't change it for the world. 